Yo, Senders, this is episode 119 of the Segment Podcast with special guest Seth Albo. Joey, hit that intro. Hi, I'm Mark Hill, and this is The Segment, the podcast. I believe in humans' potential, that the ultimate expression of oneself is achievable. And we all have that urge, that need to progress and become better. And I feel that the trail can help us do that. Whether it's overcoming fears, learning from mistakes, taking calculated trail risks, or building those long-lasting friendships. It's all progression. Join me as I speak with folks who are moving from the ordinary to the extraordinary, and let's catch them on their journey towards the KOM of their life. Welcome to the segment. Let's go. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Segment Podcast. Another episode with a special guest, bringing them right on here. Seth Alvo with Seth Bike Hacks, Burn Peak. And uh, I can't believe it. Joey, we have Seth like right here. What's up, Seth? That's awesome. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being here, brother. I got so lucky. I was in Bentonville, ran into you out there amongst the crowd of people. And, uh, dude, I just got to say big fan. And, uh, you were so kind to just like talk to everybody, talk to me, talked about the show and, uh, said you, you jump on and sure enough, man, here you are. And I feel like you're one of the godfathers for all of us content creators out there. I don't really consider myself one because when I started, there were people that I saw creating content, but, uh, I'm glad, I'm glad for the, uh, I'm glad you consider me as such. <laughs> It's good, man. It's really good. We got a lot of people on the line, Seth, and this uh, podcast is very interactive. Uh, we got Mountain Bike Q&A out of Miami, Florida. He says, I quit my job this morning to make this. <laughs> go big or go home. <laughs> right? Johnny, Johnny, don't don't quit totally. Don't quit totally. We got Spokesman MTB in the house. Uh, he's there laughing at Johnny. We got MTB Kaz out here. He says, hey, Mark, can't wait. Big fan of his channel. Uh, trail pimp up in the Lake Tahoe area saying I'm working at home at my home office and will be watching. Uh, you got Boise, Idaho in the house here says uh, segment better get the margaritas ready. <laughs> What's up, Christian? Good to see you. Uh, MTB Nick is in here saying yeah, and Emmanuel, this guy is awesome. He's a Purple Heart vet and a fellow mountain biker. Says Burn Peak is one of my go-to YouTube channels. Sorry, Mark. <laughs> well. And uh, uh, life coach here, Adam Mock is here. He says, I heard margaritas. Man, a ton of people are getting on. We're going to try to definitely get to all the chats. Um, but Seth, take us back to the beginning. Where where did this all start? We know you as a huge, you know, for us, you're an influencer on what you do and what you put out there. There's a lot of things that you do that are just so good and teach us a lot of things and you bring a lot of great value. But how did this whole thing start with mountain bikes? How far back do you want to go? What, like, when did you get on it? Like, did you, was it, was it early on? Cause your skills are tremendous. Did you, did you start early? So what's funny is, so I was born in 1985 and I learned about ride a bike really early. It was probably three years old when I was riding a two wheeler, which now that's nothing. My daughter already rides a bike. Um, but uh, back then I didn't know that you could mountain bike the way that people mountain bike now. In fact, 
that kind of mountain biking was very, very underground. You know, the North Shore stuff, the um, trials, really mountain bikes were like big road bikes. They didn't really have the geometry or the components or anything to hop up on top of picnic tables or do big jumps. I don't think it was even until the late 90s um, until, you know, downhill mountain bike parks started becoming a big thing, you know, Whistler and all that. And, um, and so I didn't really ride mountain bikes the way I do now. However, I didn't know there was another type of bike that was worth riding than a mountain bike. My first bike was a mountain bike. It was a little, um, probably 24 inch or 20 inch giant commotion and fully rigid six speeds. And there was a mountain bike trail system by our house, Greenbelt and, uh, and Stillwell. And my dad would take me out there. We probably didn't have helmets on and just riding in the dirt and riding over stuff. And to me, that was the only type of riding there was. I saw people road biking, but I wondered why anybody would want to do that. Um, Later on in life, I took up road biking myself. It's actually really fun. But at the time, that's where my head was at. And when I discovered BMX, when I discovered BMX was a real thing, that that's what all my time went into and any moment that I wasn't at school or sleeping I was riding BMX um I went to school in the clothes I was going to ride BMX in and the second I was off of school that's all I did um until you know I had to come home we were out at night we were out um we were out during the day we were out when it was freezing out um just rode BMX every waking moment and the type not Racing BMX, not skate park, street. Street oh. is my background. Um, and like, so, like flat, just, Seth, or or like like street, like street skating and street BMX, like looking for like ledges street and skating drops. and street skateboarding, like jumping staircases and hitting handrails and finding like you know you yeah. go to a you go to a strip mall and there's another building next to it and the parking lots are at different levels and so now they build a garden that goes down here and. I wasn't property owner or anything at the time. I didn't, I didn't care. <laughs> and right. so uh, like any kid, I was riding that stuff. And I think what it contributed to was creativity. And I think these, these days we take it for granted. We see a ton of creative mountain bikers. There's people that you'll watch their clips on Instagram and they're always doing something original. They're, they're always doing something just that you haven't seen before. Yes. And there was a while there in mountain biking where there really wasn't a whole lot of that. And I think it was because mountain bikes were not, they're, they're like big BMX bikes now, pretty much. Right. The geometry is completely different. They're, they're more aircraft than they are trail machines. They're really, they're really made to jump around and, and get wild on. And, um, so growing up, I had to be creative to find places to ride because sometimes all I had was a curb or something or a staircase. And it wasn't until later on where I could drive myself around that mountain biking became more appealing. And I started doing that a lot more. Interesting. Um, and by then, mountain bikes had taken on a different geometry and uh, they were vastly more capable. And mountain bike trails had evolved, too. And so the whole thing became interesting to me again. All the while I'm getting older, you can't get away with just 
you know, grinding a ledge or, you know, jumping into some garden on the, the side of a strip center. <laughs> right. Um, so it's Who kind of a natural man? evolution for a lot of us. <laughs> That's very cool, man. And I feel like the BMX has such a big influence on what we see out there today when we're looking at creativity on a mountain bike and things that people are doing, especially when you look at some of the like slope style, you know, you see all the things that, that people are oh taking God, from yeah. that BMX to, to the dirt now. And you kind of got to grow up in that area where a lot of that transitioning was happening. Did you find yourself looking at the mountain bikes and saying like, dude, that's changed a little bit. I'm going to get back on that thing. How did you transition now from BMX back over to the mountain bike? Well, I always had a mountain bike. Um, even when I, even when BMX, when I was doing a lot of BMX, I still had a mountain bike and I would still go mountain biking here and there with, with friends. Um, when I went to purchase a new mountain bike, I noticed there were a lot of different things. And I said, wait a minute, what's that for? Wow. That's got more travel than before. Or, uh, what's that? What, what's the deal with the seat post? Why is it all skinny like that? And then what's that other section down there? So dropper yeah. seat post, you know, and when I saw dropper seat posts start to become a thing, I said, oh boy, I know what that's <laughs> for. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like the BMX um, bike. Yeah. Yeah, that I know what that's for. And I saw that mountain bikes were like the top tubes were slanted back, right? They would rise up and that's to give you more space over there. And at first I was like, that looks really weird. It looks almost like a, a women's bike. Now there's no such thing as that really. It's just, you know, they just change the color of the bike. But um, it was the geometry cha changes that were happening that really got me interested in it again because it allowed you to have way more fun on a mountain bike, not just ride a road bike in the dirt, basically. Got it. Got it. Very cool. That's very cool. Um, had a question coming here from the chats, and this is going to apply to your early days of riding. Uh, somebody out here must be a Florida influence. They said, Seth, did you like riding Virginia Key when you were in Florida? And then Mountain Bike Q&A backs that up. He says, did someone say Virginia Key? So when I was living in Florida, or when I first moved to Florida, um, Biking wasn't that, I mean, it was a big part of my life, but I had transitioned to like an adult, you know, and I, I had road bikes and yeah, I would go mountain biking every so often. I, I didn't have, but I didn't have like um, a huge group of friends that went mountain biking. And so I wasn't in, as engulfed in it as I am now. Uh, I was almost like taking a hiatus from it being a big part of my life, not because I wanted to, but because... I, I didn't really know it was an option. I didn't know how much was out there. And when I moved to Florida, part of, because I, I had grown up in New York and I moved to Florida because I had some family there. I knew that Miami, Fort Lauderdale area is just really fun for a young person. I was single. And um, <laughs> <Adult and poo. laughs> yeah, <laughs> an adult, yeah. Can you believe that? Um, and I, part of the reason was I wanted to ride bikes. I wanted to ride, I wanted to live in a city where I could ride a bike everywhere. I wanted to go biking in my free time, but mountain biking wasn't really on my radar. At the time I knew that mountain biking is an interesting thing to happen when you're in Florida, because Florida is the flattest state in the entire nation. It, there's not anything even close to it. 
Um, actually, is Delaware is Delaware flatter? Delaware might be in second place, but the, yeah. like Kansas, like those Midwest states, they're not even close to as flat as Florida. Um, wow. If you were to look at the difference in elevation change throughout the state, but Florida has a lot of mining, phosphate mines and things. And there's, you know, 50 feet or so difference here and there. And you can create some serious features on that. And they did. Um, they did at Markham Park, Virginia Key, Jonathan Dickinson Park, Santos. I mean, there's, it's endless. These trail systems are more packed than almost any trail system that I've seen in the country. You know, wow. and I, I've been all over the place. There's, there's, they're also smaller. And so, yes, you have a lot of people condensed into a small area, but these trail systems are packed on the weekends and people are loving it. And there's, there's also some of the biggest, strongest communities of people fixing up those trails and building them there. Uh, part of it is Florida is pretty nice out year round. Um, and the other part of it, I don't know. I don't know why people are so passionate about it in Florida, but there, there's, there's a ton of it. Now, you don't get the long sustained downhills. You don't get the big epic climbs. Um, you do get some pretty sweet views, you know, of uh, some nice clear blue water, but it's, it's different than it is everywhere else. And what was interesting about the mountain biking in Florida, Virginia Key included, is that if you want, especially at the time when I went there, they weren't as um, they weren't as forward thinking with jumps like they are now. Mm. Uh, there were still people arguing about whether there should be jumps there or not. Um, you had to be creative to really get the most out of it. And so to me, it felt like riding street. Oh, cool. It was the same thing. You're, you're out there. Okay. How am I going to take this mountain bike trail and have the most fun with it possible? Okay. There's a rock over there. We're going to nose bonk that. Okay. I'm going to like, ride up on this tree and try and pop off of it back onto the trail. <laughs> and I started to become sort of known for that. Um, and I made a lot of friends in the mountain bike community there. And um, because all the things I learned on my BMX bike just transitioned to my mountain bike, which is newer and had better geometry. Dude, I love that, man. I love that. As growing up as a skateboarder and now a mountain biker in today's arena, it's cool how if you have never done anything transition sport wise, you know, you could be driving down the street with somebody who's never been a part of that sport versus somebody who's sitting next to them who's been doing it. And you look at the landscape so differently, your, your mind and your creativity, yeah. you just see things. You're like, Oh, look at that ledge over there. That goes down to the steps. I think that could be done, you know? And the person who's with you is like, yeah. what are you talking about? <laughs> you see something completely different than they do. I think yeah. we've all thought about that, especially because when you're driving in a car, you're going so fast, you see something that you think could be a really good launch. And then when you go up to it in real life, you realize you'd have to be going 60 miles an hour for it to work. <laughs> right. but, uh, but you're always looking at everything. Okay, I can go off of that. Down. You know, it's, yes. it's a different way of looking at the world. Yes, exactly. It, it's, a, it's such a cool meditative state. There have been times where Joey and I have been driving home from one of our local parks here called Sky Park. And you know where they, they cut the road through the mountains. And a lot of times there's these like big walls. And it's mm -hmm. like looking at a beautiful wave. Joey and I both look at it. We're not saying anything. We're just knowing that we're thinking the same thing. Like, dude, that is a really sweet right berm. 
a big one. Yep. <laughs> I think we can hit that. Just a bench and, cut in the mountain. You got that backslope. Yeah, I, I love the creativity that that uh, the sport brings to you. And obviously, it's out there in the wild when we see people doing what we're doing. And you riding those flat trails and bringing that creativity to some of those trails. Have you ridden Mark. a place out there in Miami called Alafaya? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, that place looks amazing. I've, I want to go there. Someday. It is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it is amazing. It's really, really good there. And that place got on board a little earlier than others with way more challenging stuff. Um, I'd say if you're a cross country, if you're a cross country uh, enthusiast, um, some of the stuff there would be, and it's all, it, you could probably consider it all cross country because you have to pedal for it, but it's going to be way over what a lot of cross country riders can do because there are doubles and, you know, in big drops and big transitions. And unless you can get your seat out of the way, you might have some trouble with it. Um, <laughs> but there are cross country racers and riders who ride that stuff on cross country bikes. It's just, uh, you know, it's definitely, it's definitely up there. Yeah. That's some skill for sure. Especially on that type of bike, Joey, you were going to say something. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, the way that we look at the mountains and we, we see the different terrain and stuff. Um, Seth, he tends to look at everything. Like, it doesn't matter <laughs> where he is. He's always looking at the terrain and trying to figure it out. That is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good, Joey. That's really good. What is this? Uh, a lot of the filming that you do, Seth, is this uh, in the place that you're... Is this in your garage? Where is this? That is, yeah, that's in my my garage office. Um, That's where I am right now. It's my garage, my office, my studio. This is my everything right here. This is awesome. This is awesome. Joe, if you guys are listening on iTunes or Spotify, uh, it's a clip on Instagram of uh, Seth turning his office into a landscape that you could ride. <laughs> this, is, this is great. Uh, so Seth, you're in, you're in Florida, you're riding there, and then you move uh, out east, and that's where you are today. That's a lot of the footage that we see. What brought you from Florida out to the east? Well, Florida is the east. Oh, but sorry. But um, North Carolina is further. It's probably halfway between Florida and New York. I grew up in New York. New York has mountains and, and everything. Long Island doesn't. But uh, I'm what you would consider half back. I moved down to Florida. I made halfway back. Um, <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted the, honestly, one of the biggest, one of the biggest reasons that I moved away from Florida was they couldn't get the mosquitoes under control. They used uh-huh. the spray for them and stuff. It was so bad. I couldn't even go outside. And I just felt my, like I'm one of those people that gets bit by mosquitoes when nobody else is getting bit by them. And um, it was to the point where I was just hiding in my house, unless I was on a bicycle moving, I was getting right. bit by mosquitoes. And so mm-hmm. I had to. And yeah. so uh, I really wanted out for that reason. And, um, and by the way, not all parts of Florida are like that. Other parts have, are, have a little better under control than others. Um, but Fort Lauderdale didn't, it was, it was, it was unlivable, uh, by the time I got out of there. Um, and also by then my YouTube channel had taken off and I wanted to have like a backyard and I didn't think there was any chance that I would be able to afford a place with a backyard in Florida at the time. 
um, especially a backyard that I could actually build anything kind of interesting in. I would have to move maybe to like central Florida or somewhere where there's some hills. Um, and so I bought a house in Asheville, North Carolina, right outside Asheville, North Carolina. And it was a really small yard. But I remember looking at it and saying, okay, that's just one big 45 degree angle. I think I could figure something out there. And that is where Berm Creek came from. The original backyard trail, Berm Creek. There was a berm at the bottom of the hill that was just kind of there because the, the builders had just piled up dirt there. And on the other side of the berm, there's a creek. And if you blow the berm, you end up in the creek. So that was <laughs> okay. Berm Creek. And, you know, I built a bunch of um, kind of crazy for the size of the place features there. And then when I moved here, I called it Berm Peak because I knew the audience would be like, oh my God, you know, we're leaving Berm Creek behind. I wanted something that nobody missed Berm Creek when we came to Berm Peak, but still um, I wanted to carry over the name. And now everything kind of has that theme, Berm Park, Berm Peak, Berm Creek, you know, it's all, uh, it, it all comes from Berm Creek. Interesting. That was one of the questions I was going to ask you. That's a very cool description. And I, I think too, uh, isn't there a trail in Bentonville that they paid homage to Berm Creek, I think? Yes, there yeah. is a trail in Bentonville called Berm Creek. And they asked me permission. They say, can we name a trail Berm Creek? And it's going to kind of be styled a little bit after Berm Creek. That's cool. That's cool. What a great compliment, man. That's such a fun place yeah. to Bentonville is awesome. It's really fun. Yeah. Now, Seth, what, what is your background? Because you're successful, in my eyes, a successful YouTuber. Uh, did you have, and now a builder of trails, did you have a degree in like engineering or anything like that? Or is this just, I think I can do it. I'm going to give it a shot. I don't have a degree in anything. Um, I, uh, what's my background? <laughs> I was always very interested in technology growing up and I was always very interested in tinkering. I did work at some bike shops when I was growing up. I, I have I've worked at several bike shops and um, I worked as a technician on automobiles, actually vehicle electrical systems, uh, oh. police lighting, remote car starters, alarms, audio systems, uh, you name it. Um, and so I have a lot of experience working with tools professionally every single day, carrying tools with me and, and uh, you know, implementing it to, to actually get a job done. And so once you have a background in one type of tools, it's easy to transition to others. Like I said, I do have experience working with bikes, although it was long before mountain bikes had changed to the way there was no hydraulic disc brakes or, or um, you know, uh, suspension that is serviced in the way that it is now back when I was working at bike shops. But um, I was also very interested in computers and videography and photography. And so it's, these are all the things that I was most involved in. I didn't know that there was going to be a job that combined them all. That didn't exist, right? Having a YouTube channel on bicycles, that wasn't even an option. Mm -hmm. Yeah when I was acquiring all those different skills and doing all those activities, but it literally takes every single thing that I did and combines them. So I would, I would hope that's like the best I could hope for anyone that that could be their career is take all the things that you're best at doing and combine them. Wow. That's cool. Uh, Adam Mock here, uh, who is a life coach. He says, great example that you don't always need a degree to be successful. 
Yeah. Now to be clear, I've been to college, but I kept changing what I was doing so many times and also looking at it really pragmatically. Like I originally went for electrical engineering and um, I, I'm glad I didn't give it a chance because um, I ended up where I am now. Yeah. But at the time, with all the things that I was learning, it's like I hated my professors. I, I hated the classes. And I said, this isn't, this isn't anything what I thought engineering was. This sucks. This is so dry and boring. And I didn't know that once you get out in the field, you don't do any of the stuff that you're doing in college. But just like calculus one, calculus two, differential, like just – I just hated it. And so um, I switched to business because I said, I, I don't know what I want to do, but it's not this. I just want to be able to do whatever I'm doing without a boss. <laughs> and so I want to go, I want to go for business and any, any degree you go for in uh, college, you have to take a whole bunch of crap that has nothing to do with the degree, which I think is one of the reasons why college is so expensive. And yeah. I didn't take any of that stuff. I took all the business courses right up front. And I figured I'd take all the easy stuff at the end when I'm trying to start a business. And once I was done with all the business stuff, I just dropped out of college because um, it's like, I'm not going to take basket weaving and um, <laughs> third century history art. or whatever, <laughs> yeah. whatever it was. Um, I, I just, um, I said, I don't have time for this. I, I want to start a business. And at the, at already, I was building websites and stuff for people to pay my way through college. And um, I was already looking for a personal assistant at that point. And I was wow. like, this is a waste of time. I'm just going to, I'm going to start my business. I love working for myself. And um, that's what I did. And that's around the time where I decided I was going to move to Florida because I was in New York, Long Island, New York. And I was, I was not very happy there because there's long island's a cool place like there's lots of good things about long island but if you are into like being outside all the time and you don't like the cold it's a problem like yeah, if, it gets really right. cold there and um if you're into boating and stuff it's probably a great place to be um but yeah uh Florida's even better for boating and right. um, it's also <laughs> good for riding a bike around a city and um, you can just be outside all the time. And that, I didn't really care where I was outside. I just wanted to be outside. I like the green. I like the palm trees. I like being able to be outside year round. I like being able to actually swim in the ocean and be comfortable. Not like um, you need to wear a wetsuit for to be comfortable. <laughs> um and I, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Like I, I went to the, I lived a mile from the beach. I went swimming it, uh, in the ocean all the time. Uh, you oh. can even see it in my early videos. Like I took the that, that um, Walmart fat bike into the ocean when that big wake of the cruise ship was coming. Like I like lived and breathed the ocean and riding my bike around town. It, it, it was as fun as I had hoped it would be. That's so cool, man. Taking the passions. There was a comment back here that said passion is the precursor to success. And I can see that throughout your story with the bike and with things that you like to do and tinkering around. And, and then now you end up moving a little further. You, you're going half back and you're building trails out there. Did somebody teach you how to build trails or was that very similar to your curiosity of like kind of tinkering around and seeing landscape? 
Yeah, I had no idea how to build trails. I learned that as I was going along. Uh, now I sort of know the finer points of it, but back then I didn't like now I've, I've seen professional trail builders build trails from start to finish. I've built trails myself. I've seen which ones hold up and which ones don't. Um, I've been at now when I look at trails, I look at trails a different way. Is it outsloped? Is it insloped? Where's the drainage? Um, but no, when I started, I just said, I want to build something that's fun to ride. And then when the trail fell apart in front of it, I had to learn something to fix it. And that's, that's how it went. Nice. I like that. Kind of like fail to succeed type of thing. Like you, you, you try it, something sure. happens, you learn from it, you make it a little better. And next thing you know, sure. you're getting a trail in Bentonville named after your, your burn <laughs> Creek, which is, which is awesome. Sure. You learn more from your failures than you do from, you know, your successes. I love that. That's a great, that's a great, uh, that's a great outlook on, on life for a lot of us. Uh, Burrell Bikes is saying, so can Seth explain the physics behind why a bike actually works? <laughs> I had a video about that. <laughs> yeah, spokesman says the foot, the foot parts push the links part. <laughs> that turns the gear part and make the spoke and rubber parts spin around. <laughs> Thank you, spokesman, for that. I appreciate it. Oh, man. Seth, with, okay, so now you're, you're working for yourself. Uh, business is always great because that's going to be in whatever aspect of life you go through and uh, you decide not to finish off college. You're, you're making the, the plan work. The YouTube channel is being successful. Can you take us to that moment where you realized this is now what I'm going to do, uh, that this is now sustainable? Was there like a pause moment where you're like, wait a minute, I, I can do this? Definitely. So um, when I had started the YouTube channel, I just started doing it and I started getting this validation. People say, I love this video. When are you going to post another one? And I was not using YouTube the way that I do now. Now it's people take for granted that you go into YouTube and you subscribe to people and there's people who make their living on YouTube. And there were at the time then, but if you ask your grandma about it, she wouldn't know. Um, now, now everybody knows that that's a thing on YouTube. And it really, it really wasn't back in 2015. It, there was like a few. Um, and so I didn't know that people logged into YouTube. I was like, why would anybody want to leave a YouTube comment? Why would anybody go back to the same creator to post a video? Like how many cat videos, you know, can you post? And I didn't realize how in-depth YouTube was and how there were all these subcategories and there were people that were actually YouTubers and trying to build audiences. And also the partner program the, that allows you to monetize YouTube videos was in its infancy then. It had just been made public. Oh, and I wow. just thought, well, I mean, I'm going to get, a, even if I get a few thousand views per video, there's not, there's no way to make a living at this. There's no way I can... So I just don't want ads in my videos. So I just had all monetization turned off. Oh, and then wow. when I was at about 10,000 subscribers, which at the time was, in it, now everybody has 10,000 subscribers. But back then, it was an extraordinary amount of subscribers. I don't even know what Global Mountain Bike Network was at at that time. But um, it, was, it was probably what you would consider a small YouTube channel right now. Wow. Um, and I turned on monetization. I applied for the, uh, for the partner program. I got accepted. I turned on monetization. And the first month, 
I got like 360 bucks or something like that. And I said, well, okay, that's like a payment on my Mazda. Like, yeah. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. And uh, so now I can sort of justify this a little bit. And I also started extrapolating because I'm like, okay, let, I gained a couple thousand subscribers just this month. And I started extrapolating and I said, well, holy crap, if I keep, I've grown this big in this amount of time in the next year, uh, it's going to be like 30 something thousand a year, I was thinking. And, you know, that's, that's enough to be significant. That's enough to have a significant impact on my income. And so I kept doing it. And after a couple of years, I figured out that it was growing a lot faster than my, my web development endeavors and my IT endeavors. I mean, that was not scalable because it was completely dependent on me. My clients enjoyed working with me and working with my assistant, and I wasn't a very good organizational leader. I needed something that could scale, even if it was just a few people. Um, you know, somebody starts, um, somebody starts a food truck and they do really, really well. And everybody comes to their food truck. Now they're like, okay, uh, I, I can only make so much food. Let me open a restaurant. Okay, great. Now you're doing payroll and purchasing and right. filling in for people who call out sick and you're not doing the original thing that you started doing. You're now, now the growth of your business is dependent on you being a talented organizational leader, not being a talented chef. And, and I was a chef. I liked making videos. I, nice. I, I, I didn't want, I, I, and when I did web development, I was really good at dealing with the clients and doing entertaining weird requests and, and integrating different systems together. I couldn't really find anybody else who was that good at that, who could also deal with the clients. And so I couldn't scale it. It was just like the guy with the food truck. If Mm. I was going to grow it, it wasn't going to be from being good at dicking around with computers. It was going to be by being a good organizational leader, which I never was and never will be. And so YouTube was like, wait, I can do the same thing and the audience can keep growing and the business can keep growing and I can keep put this, putting this content out to more and more people and it just scales with the same one guy doing it. That's like the perfect, that's perfect. I want to do that. Wow. And so I started thinking along the lines of this, this is what I'm going to do at some point. And within the next year, um, I had totally closed up my operations and sort of like handed all my clients over to my personal assistant. Now she runs. Wow. Wow. Holy cow. So it really came through. I love the fact that we talked earlier in the show about seeing landscape differently as a creative, as a mountain biker, as what we do. And here you are seeing this landscape differently as a creator and growing this YouTube channel. Like you can see you're extrapolating that this can take over, this can be scalable without becoming a real estate person, a payroll person, right. you know, all these things. That is as pretty cool. So when you started realizing this, did you feel the momentum at the time or was it still scary? It wasn't scary for me at all. I mean, at the time I at the time I saw the momentum. I was looking at the numbers every single day. I was very well aware how fast it was growing and I was learning new things and my videos were getting better and better. And it just seemed like a shrewd business decision at that point. Like what if there was definitely some emotion and passion in it, but even if you subtracted all that, it was the right decision based on 
what was happening and what the potential was and how much YouTube was growing and everything. Um, I kind of got in at a good time. Yeah. And man. so no, it, it wasn't scary at all. It just, it was the right thing to do. That's amazing. Oh God. I love it. The best business decisions ever. And someday I'm sure we'll look back and there'll, there'll be classes on how people did this, you know, and, and see, they actually will take this as a real job, a real entrepreneurial endeavor. Uh, this whole YouTube sure. whole time, which is very cool. Um, when we look at your YouTube channel, Seth, and we see it going from like POV to like tinkering to trail building, how did that all start as well? Like, did you, I know you love making videos, um, but when did you go from like POV to like, I'm going to do a video on making like a Frankenstein bike or, or this or this or that? How did you start branching off into different arenas? Well, the way it started off, um, it was called Seth's bike hacks. And I was just doing kind of, I had this little tiny backyard. It was a, the backyard was a deck with a fence around it. it Cause I live in a townhouse in Fort Lauderdale. And so it was about hacks. It was about doing little hacks um, on bikes. And then I started going out on the trails and, and doing more as my camera gear kind of grew. Um, Oh, to answer mountain bike Q and a, I don't pay attention to that. I don't even, I don't look at the, I barely look at anything now. I just have my head down making videos, but um, <laughs> I feel like it's unhealthy. We could, we could talk a little bit more about that later. <laughs> but um, as my camera gear grew and my workflow became more dialed, that's when I started kind of going out there and doing more complex things. Because if I were to tell somebody who's never made a video tomorrow, go out and make a video, they come back with complete crap. They come back with nothing but unusable crap. Even if they know how to hold the camera steady, they come back with completely unusable stuff because they don't know what the end result is supposed to be. You'd be the smartest person in the world. They, they don't know what the end result is supposed to be, so they don't know what they're preparing for. Mm. It'd be like if you told somebody who's never farmed, okay, go prep this field for the, you know, the harvest. They, you know, they haven't seen the end result. They haven't seen it happen. And so um, once I made 50 or 60 videos, I knew what I wanted to have when I was sitting there editing. I knew what people were going to say about the end result. And so I knew what I had to go out there and do. I knew what I had to bring with me. I knew how much memory I needed. I knew how much battery I needed. Wow. I knew what I should be shooting, what I shouldn't be shooting. Overshooting is a huge one. If you overshoot, you are screwed because you're going to be going through 16 hours of video to try and make a five minute one. Yes. And uh, now it takes you three times as long. And you can't get the next video out. And so um, I was kind of addicted to making videos and really dialing in a repeatable workflow. And it was the workflow that really, and the workflow has since changed a bit, but at its basis, it's still the same. Whereas I do some planning. I import all the footage. I organize all the footage and then I lay down and edit. Got it. So you, you literally start with the end in mind before you even go out. You already have an idea then before yes. you even go out to shoot of, of what the story is going to be. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh -huh. um, and if it's a story that I know is going to have to develop, I know, I don't know what the exact story is going to be. But I know what the nature of it is it's going to be. Is it going to be a travel video? Is it going to be a video where I need to overcome something or fail at it? 
Um, I, I have some ideas or at least a couple of branches of what it could be. And I have it pretty planned out. And sometimes the planning actually takes place. Like I'll get everything I need that I know I need to build a story. Um, like something like, uh, like the white line video, for example, I didn't know how that was going to turn out. And so I got as much on the white line and me riding the white line and all that as, as I possibly could. That's too high up in the sky. <laughs> and then <laughs> you get to the, you get to final cut pro and organize all the footage, like meticulously organize all the footage into little categories like, um, travel, unloading bikes, bike repairs, um, wow. mistakes, anything wow. for, for two reasons. Now, one of the most important reasons you organize it is because when you're editing, I, like I can only concentrate on so many things at the same time. And so I'm playing through the video editing. Okay. I need a clip of this. If I have to root through all my footage to find that clip, uh, I'm going to lose track of what I was feeling and what I wanted to come next. And so I need it to be fast so I can just lay stuff down. And so organizing it helps with that. But most importantly, when you organize all your footage, it forces you to, on a granular, a granular level, go through every bit of the footage from that project. And by the end of it, you have an overhead view of all your footage. How much of this I have? Oh, yeah, I said that before. That could be a joke later on. I could play these two things to together. In going through the footage and organizing it, it's like studying it. And so you study the footage and then you put down the edit. Oh, if you wow. just jump right in, you're, you're going in blind. Got it. So when you're going into Final Cut Pro and you're putting it in there, uh, like where it says, like the, the file says GX1973, you actually mm -hmm. can change that to like, this is where I said this, or this is hiking up to the white line and you organize it like kind that. Of. Okay. So you can make keyword collections. You hold a uh, command shift K. It creates a little keyword collection on the side and you can label it something. And then any footage you drag into there is in that keyword collection. And if you click it, it'll bring up only those clips. You can even take part of a clip. And so let's say I have a Go GoPro segment that's five minutes long you know, really long GoPro recording. Uh, and I hit a couple of jumps. I can take that section of the footage and put it in jumps and then put the other section in climbing. Wow. Command shift K dude, this is gold. <laughs> Thank you. So you organize it that way as you're studying the clips. And then as you're seeing that it's helping back up the story, the general story that you had in mind before you even went out. And now you're building it before it even gets into the timeline to splice and put together. Sure. And the way that I used to do it, even back as recently as that white line video, which is not that recent, it's probably close to four years ago. Yeah, Joe, you had that. Yeah. I, I, um, I used to narrate my videos. I used to do voiceovers. And it would take me a solid workday to write out a voiceover. And then... I had to record the voiceover. And if it was the end of the day now, like, I don't know if you've tried to like um, talk really clearly and, um, and enthusiastically at the end of the day With when no the energy. coffee is worn off and you, didn't, <laughs> you know, and you're yes. all haggard. Um, so I'd have to wait for the following day to record the voiceover. And it just, it just wasted so much time. And the, the funny thing is like, when I first started doing you take a, any random person, Take the most popular kid from your high school. 
point a camera at their face and tell them ready, set, be entertaining. They Ooh. will fail. Ooh. They will absolutely fail immediately. It's a learned skill. Maybe there's some people who can do it naturally, but it's a learned skill. You have to be in front of a camera so much that it vanishes and you can actually be yourself in front of a camera. Um, and I didn't have that. Not for the at least the first four years of my YouTube channel. I didn't, I was not able to do that. And one day I just stood in front of a camera and I was like, oh crap, I can talk to the camera now. I had been in front of a camera so much that it, I had just forgotten it was there. I could just look into the lens and talk to it like I was talking to a normal person. It wow. took years to learn how to do that. Wow. And so I started enjoying that a little bit more. I started enjoying like more of like the emotion and in the moment and the ad-libbing and like the fact that some jokes just materialize. Uh -huh. um, and I got a cameraman, now my assistant producer, Curtis, he's been with me for, for at least four or five years now. Um, and when I'm, sh and Curtis and I have a very similar sense of humor. We're both, um, we both don't have that big of an ego. So we'll listen to each other's ideas and we're always like focused on the end result. And I don't care what it takes. If I have to put an embarrassing clip of myself in the video for the end result to be better, I'll do that. Um, if I have to abandon the idea I originally had and take Curtis's idea, I will. And um, what's great about Curtis is when I'm talking to the camera, I'm talking to Curtis. And so it's jokes that I know he's going to find funny. And it's, it's, it's things that we both know are going to be good in the video. And now he, he edits four videos a month for me. That goes on Burn Peak Express. And then the original channel, Burn Peak, I'm always the one who still edits for that. And that's really the only difference between the two channels is who produces the videos. God, um, okay. Yeah. And so um, he's had a lot of repetition now. His videos are starting to look way more refined than mine are. But mine are still, mine still have a character to them where I go more into depth on things and I get more technical because I'm the one editing it. I don't have to go through somebody and explain to them what has to be there. God. Gotcha. But anyway, I think we just went on a little bit of a tangent. That was an amazing tangent. I love it, man. I love it. Let's check in with the chats and see what they're saying. Uh, Trail Dogs MTB saying, when's the Seth Masterclass coming out? No kidding. No kidding. Let, let me know what you want to see. We, we, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't want to disclose too much, but I'm working on something that is due to launch at the beginning of 2024. And it's going to be a bit of a community and that could be some of what it contains. If there are YouTubers and people who want to learn from it, if there's a big enough audience of those people, um, we, we could have something like that. But, um, but I'm a, I'm an okay producer. I'm an okay videographer. I'm, I'm okay at a lot of things. I'm not a master at any of it. And so I don't know if I could ever do a master class. I think, I think there's a lot to learn uh, for, for us from what you've been through. And I think what's cool about you is that you just do it. You just go, you don't wait for permission. You don't try to go get a degree that says, okay, now I can do it. Like from what I'm seeing is like, you do it, you learn from it and you make it happen which is commendable. I, I love it. So actually, and um, I've seen through friends and family and all different people, numerous examples of somebody who says they're going to start a YouTube channel and they spend months preparing for it. 
getting the camera gear and learning editing software and all this stuff. And not in any of those situations have I ever seen it materialize. The only way to do it is to just grab your cell phone and jump in because doing 10, 20, 30 videos is going to be the only thing that's going to make it happen. That's the only way to do it. Yes. Yeah. Preach it, man. I, so true. So true. And then let's talk about the numbers and the comments on top of that, because those could be toxic sometimes when you're first starting out and you're like, damn it, I have like all that work and three people watched it. Um, yeah. Is there, is there like, is that one of the reasons why maybe you don't look at it or would you tell a new YouTuber not to pay attention so much to that stuff? Mm, it was never, maybe I have the somewhat unique experience of only seeing it growing. And so it was always, it was always a positive thing for me. Um, the reason why I don't spend a lot of time in the comments and the reason that I don't spend a lot of time looking at the numbers is because um and I look at the numbers enough to know whether something worked or not. Um, but I don't think it's healthy. So especially the comments and I want to be clear, like how much I love my audience. Anybody who's met me in real life knows that like, I'm, I am happy to see them. Um, but when you, when let's say you have a bunch of negative comments, right? It's easy to see why that is unhealthy because the comment section is not an accurate cross section of your audience. It's a cross section of people who leave comments. Mm. And most people don't like when I'm in my personal life, I, I've never left a comment on a YouTube video in my entire life. Right. And so it's, it's not an accurate cross section of your audience. And also, you know, that people who are pissed about something are disproportionately vocal about it. You can look at restaurant reviews to tell that. Yes. So, Negative comments can be constructive, but a lot of times they're unhealthy. But it's not just negative comments that are unhealthy. It's positive comments. If somebody's telling you you're amazing all day, that's not a normal, that's not a normal position for a human being to be in. Um, just look at people who are in that position. Um, how big a douchebags they become. And so yeah. I don't even like that. I just want to put out the video and see that it worked and meet people in person, hear from people in person, have conversations with them. And so I try to go into the comments early on with my video posts because I know that's when my people are there and I want to show, show them love and I want to legitimately read their comments and put down some hearts and, and reply to some people. But I try to limit the amount that I spend in the analytics and the comments because I just, I'm a creator, right? I, I, I'm a creator at heart, I'm not a celebrity. Like I can't, I can't be that. I'm, I won't be good at being that. Um, and so I really try and limit my exposure to that. Got it. I love it. I love it. Trail Dog saying, great to take a uh, looks behind the curtain on how you conceptualize, shoot, and produce your content. They're saying here, um, going back to that part where you are the creator. And the celebrity thing is kind of strange how YouTube kind of puts you out there in a spotlight. And that's something that uh, everyone handles differently. But I've definitely seen you in action in Bentonville amongst all the people. And even though you're, it was hot and uh, it was like, man, we got to find some shade. And you were like, go, go, go. People wanted you everywhere. You were like, anybody that had a phone and wanted to come and say, hi, man, you, I just watched you just so, so good with everybody. I love well, it. Thank you. Yeah, of course, man. We got a couple questions here. I know we're only, gosh, we're only 10 minutes left in the show, but uh, there are folks here in the audience who are dying to ask questions 
And uh, let's see, Octodad out of New Zealand tuning in today. He says, what does Seth think about Bernard Kerr's style? Long format pump and dump racing clogs, he says. Vlogs. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not familiar with Bernard Kerr's style, and so I couldn't tell you. We have one here from Burrell Bikes, uh, $4.99 contribution to the show. He says, do you have time to please tell the story of how you, BKXE, and Alex uh, Sampler all met? So I'll give you the condensed version. So I have been corresponding with Brian via email. And he, even at the time, I, I probably have the 30,000 subscribers. And so he somehow wrote an email that got through to me. And he's like, Anytime, if you want to go anywhere, you just let me know where it is and we'll meet up and ride and make videos together. And I started checking on his channel and I'm like, this guy's a madman. He quit his job and he's going to make this work, but he's doing it the right way. He's putting, he's putting 24 hours a day in and he's losing sleep over it. He's doing it. He's doing it right. And so I really had a lot of faith in Brian. I knew he was going to succeed. And so I met with him in Moab and he said, hey, my friend uh, Alex is going to come out here. And I said, okay, Brian's vouching for him. And we ended up being fast friends. Alex lives 10 minutes away from me now. Wow. I love his channel too. God, great writers. All you guys trail pimp is saying, do you like BKX? <laughs> do you like BKX or single track sampler better? <laughs> nice Joey. <laughs> we could pass on that. Seth. We could pass on that. Um, we, we have a question here. It says uh, spokesman MTB uh, out of Durango is saying, Seth, how often do you do pickups or reshoots? All the time I'm sitting there editing and I realize I'm missing something or I'm or I realize that there be, could be something more to make the video better. And I either have to get up early the next morning or drop everything I'm doing right then and there and go out. And one of the things that minimizes that is that I meticulously organize not only the project I'm working on, but every single project I've ever done since the inception of the channel. I have huge case of hard drives that I can go through and pick out any clip I want. And so if oh, I need wow. a clip of me removing a headset, I've got it. If I need a clip of um, going off a big jump in, in British Columbia, I have it. And wow. so I can always go back and get those. And that cuts down on having to reshoot things. Um, but yeah, I'll go out and I'll go out and get additional footage in almost every single video. Dang, dang, dedicated to the craft for sure. Spokesman's also saying, would be nice to see a series on maintenance, upkeep, rebuilds, mechanical work he's asking for. Be interesting. I guess it would depend on how it's structured. To me, flip bike was a little bit of that. That was one aspect of that, rebuilds, taking an old bike and revamping it and upgrading it. Um, and I think it did involve a lot of mechanical work. I try not to keep, I try to keep things accessible to a wide audience. Like I, I know I've said this before in interviews, but um, I, in every single category there is from, from cars to deep sea fishing, to gold mining, to, to everything that's out there, there is a show that is designed for everyone. It's not designed for deep sea, deep sea fishermen. Or gold. Could you imagine if the freaking gold mining shows were made for gold miners to watch? How big the <laughs> right. audience would be? It'd be like yeah. six people, right? Yeah. And so, so why isn't there a mountain bike show that's made for everyone? And that's that's what I try to do. And I, I probably get more in depth than you would expect to 
in that situation, but people love it. Um, I have so many people that comment, I, I, um, I don't intend to ever pick up a mountain bike in my life, but I watch this every single week. Oh, that's right? a huge and, compliment. Yeah. And so we're creating mountain bikers. We're, we're giving people a positive view of mountain biking. We're giving them, a, we're peering inside of mountain biking. And sometimes, so like, so whenever in a video I'm explaining why you would shift into a lower gear, something that the entire audience should know, it's for those people. It's because mm. I want it to be accessible to anyone. I love it, man. Great insight as far as how to create the message to get to a wider demographic of people. I it's I love how you think of all this stuff. It really is cool. And I know uh, as a family man, you got to get back to uh, being a dad. But as far as uh, being a dad and giving back and also being a mountain biker and giving back, I, I did want to make you I did want to allow you to have the moment to talk about how you've given back to the mountain bike community through some of these parks and we were talking backstage before the show started. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the parks that you've helped get created? Well, I've always done, even since I started making money on YouTube, I've always donated to local mountain bike organizations and things. And I, ha and I don't even make that public a lot of the time. Like I don't share it and stuff. I just, just do it. And, um, but one big thing that I did publicly and with the help of my audience and with the help of some sponsors was build Burn Park. And um, it was all my patrons, like on Patreon. I, I, had do, I was doing a little podcast and, you know, little behind the scenes videos and stuff. And I said um, to the patrons, hey, how about I stop doing all this stuff and we just save up to build a bike park? And they were like, yep, let's do it. They were like, yeah, we're on board. And so we started saving up and then I started promoting it. And it, it was years it took us to do it. But um, I stopped collecting that Patreon revenue and I started just putting it away to build a bike park. And with the help of my patrons and with the help of some sponsors that wanted to get on board, uh, like we need, we let them name a trail. Uh, wow. I knew from the start, I couldn't take on a hundred sponsors that each wanted to give 2,500 bucks. It was like, no, um, if you're sponsoring this, you're covering an entire trail. We're doing five trails. Who wants to cover an entire trail? Because I would not be able to shoulder the administrative burden right. of dealing with hundreds of people. And so we figured out a way to do it efficiently. We found the right partners and we built a free public pedal up bike park in Canton. And now the park that encloses it, Chestnut Mountain, has freaking rad trails. Sick. Like uh, the video with Eric Porter and why That's I don't make mountain biking videos anymore. That was up on this double black champion this stuff probably looks really small in the video, but like that's a like a bike park style jump trail. Oh yeah, like, those step ups you, you guys are hitting. Up to in North Carolina, <laughs> it's sick. Um, it goes on and on and on. I can't even count how many jumps there are. It's sick. That is so sick. So that uh, man, if you guys and is that year round or do you and do you have to pay to? Uh, you said it's free, totally free. It's totally free. It's year round, and that and those trails were funded through grants and things. And Canton, North Carolina, is the one that organized them because. Burn Park was a success and they wanted more. They wanted more and more and more. And that's what they're doing. And so um, I get sick and tired of saying, I told you so, you know, build mountain bike trails. People are going to love it. But what was, what was really helped with that was the town manager of Canton at the time, assistant town manager. He was, he already knew the deal. 
he knew he knew just as well as I would that it would work. And so he was my political ally that helped push everything through and make it happen. That's Nick Shoyer. Oh, yeah. man. Shout out to Nick Shoyer. Is uh, Nick on a bike by chance? Is he a mountain biker? Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, he yeah. shreds. Love it. it I awesome. love it. Oh, my gosh, Seth. And I can't believe we're already on time. But um, as far as what's coming from your channel, can you give the folks a little bit of a preview as to what they might be able to see? Can you give us a bit of a taste and where they can find you if they don't already know? Well, you can find me uh, Berm Peak, Berm Peak Express. And then on my social channels, I'm usually Seth's Bike Hacks because yeah, everything's all messed up. But uh, <laughs> I still have my old memes. They don't let you change them and stuff. But um uh what's to come is kind of hard to say um i'm usually only planning about two weeks out i have a couple i have a couple of little things planned for later on in the year but most of my plans are only two weeks out because we head down working on what we're doing and then strategy meeting one day to figure out what the next one's going to be and then it's we implement it we meaning curtis and i I love it. Emmanuel is asking a question. He says, I've been able to fix my bike because of Seth's videos. I also broke it to where I've had to take it to the shop because of Seth's videos. <laughs> That's comment of the day. <laughs> that is a full circle, man. Seth, uh, Seth Alvo, I really appreciated you being on the segment podcast, my man. Thank you uh, so, so much for giving us an opportunity to talk to you and to give our audience an opportunity to ask you questions. This has been a, a big pleasure. I, I have to go back and listen to this again. There's so many nuggets that you dropped. Uh, truly appreciate the time, my brother. Thank you so much, Mark. Like really, thanks for having me on. Heck yeah, ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Seth Alvo. Yo, we'll see you guys on the next episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, check out Seth Bike Hacks, Burn Peak, Burn Peak Express when you're out there. And if you haven't had a chance to, Seth's last video is super dope. All imported down those trails. Amazing, amazing episode. And we'll see you guys all back here on the next episode. Talk to you all soon. senders that is a wrap on episode 119 with the seth alvo from seth bike hacks burn peak and burn peak express i love talking to seth about bikes in general and the whole genesis of where it all started i can imagine seth running around the city in florida doing bmx on street hitting rails hitting stairs just being creative and making your own obstacles out of the landscape and I love how that evolves throughout this whole story between Seth Alvo, where he started and where he is today when it comes to trail building, tinkering with bikes, uh, flipping bikes, all the things that he has done and is continuing to do. I just love that story. Uh, thank you so much to the supporters of the segment podcast for making these episodes available to you. Big thank you going out to YT Industries. Tasco MTB, Kenda Tires, 6D Helmets, Spy Optic, and Edney's Shoes. If you guys do want to purchase something, take a look in the show notes, click on the link, use the promo code. Not only will you save yourself a percentage off of the retail price, but you'll also be helping out the segment studio when you do so. Always want to leave you with a positive note. If you see us out there on the trail, come up and say hi. We always love it, especially podcast engineer Joey. He loves it, loves it, loves it, loves it. Um, but thank you for everything you do. 
Remember, when times get tough, and they are, because life just has its ways, those ups and downs, but those storms as they come through, to weather the storm, just know that they are going to happen. Things are going to suck, but you have everything within you to get through it. And eventually, the clouds are going to part, the sun's going to come out, and all the hard work that you put into something to reach a goal or overcome something, it's always going to pay off. We'll see you guys back here with episode 120 back in the studio, or we'll see you out there in the wild.